I love to hear all you guys talking to each other and communicating your love for one another. Excellent. So, here we are. I guess you could either keep, I was thinking you could also keep time based on the NFL season. Now we are in post-football uh, life as we know it. And I know for a lot of people, you guys just don't know what to do with yourselves now because what are you going to do Sunday afternoons? But for people like me, I'm just going to start watching my NASCAR again. So I'm excited. So I always have something to do on Sunday afternoons. So, well, good morning. Here we are uh, at our upper room communion service is what it is for us today as we remember uh, the Lord. And if you remember, we're also continuing our Life of Christ series. So this is just kind of a continuation of the series that we've been doing in youth, uh, uh, the Life of Christ uh, series. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we have our sermon notebooks. So if you haven't had a chance to grab one of those, or and in the beginning of that, I mentioned those maps that are helping us follow along uh, with the Life of Christ as we work through the Gospels in a, in a chronological way uh, of seeing what He's done. But then each upper room, we're going to continue in the life of Christ, but we're going to be looking at different parables. We're going to see some of the things that he taught uh, as he was meeting with his disciples and the crowds and all these things and, and what he has for us to learn through these parables. So if you remember last time in January, I looked at the parable of the, the soils, the seed. There we go. I heard it out there, so that's a good sign. So we, we realized that we are free from the cares of this world. We want that spiritual growth so our roots can grow deep uh, into the soil and have this growth, this abundant life that Christ has for us. So uh, this week, we're going to look at another one of the popular parables. We're going to look at the prodigal son, and we're going to see the lessons that God has for us as we work our way through uh, that parable. But with this being the upper room, you know, and I'm such a fun guy, we like to do stuff with the kids. So uh, kids, come on up on stage, and we're going to have, this is going to be pretty fun. This is going to be a fun little thing based on some of the stuff that I already have uh, up here. Here we go. We got some coming. We got it. We got it. There's some coming up. Here we go. They're working their way up. They know they get candy, so here they come, working their way up on the stage. Slowly but surely, there we are, getting carried up on stage. I'm not a healer. Is he paralyzed? I'm not a healer or anything. That was probably, I probably shouldn't have said it. There we go. Oh, man. We're, oh, man. They're coming from all angles. Here we go. I'm being surrounded. All right. So, did I say take a seat? No, I'm just kidding. That's fine. All right. So, let me stand off to the side so I don't block everybody. But, I want to ask you guys kind of an initial question. And the initial question I want to ask you is actually one that uh, Ava came up with as we were talking about the upper room service. And I want to know, if I were to give you a million dollars, what would you do with it? Anybody have any ideas? Yeah. Buy a dog. Buy a dog. Oh, geez. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Those who know what she's referring to, thanks a lot. All right, so a million, buy, it, uh, that'd buy a lot of dogs too, a million dollars. 
All right. Anybody else? Anybody have any other ideas? What, what would you do with a million, a million dollars? What would you do if you had like all the money in the world? What would you buy? The biggest building in the world. There you go. All right. Would you, anybody? Any ideas? Don't know? She wants to buy a unicorn. Buy a unicorn. Whoa. There you go. That, all right. Million dollars. You could probably make that happen in some weird scientific way, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. We're, we're going to be looking at part of a story where a guy gets a lot of money. And we're going to see kind of how he spends it. But this other picture that we're going to see is this great picture of God's forgiveness and love for his people. So in order to kind of get this idea, I have this cool little thing that we're going to do. So these little peanuts, they call them these packing peanuts, represent sin in our lives. This is our sin. So I'm I'm going to... I know you guys probably aren't going to admit that you have sin, but I want you to take a little bit of sin. It doesn't really sound right. Like, here, here is, here's Seth passing out sin to all the kids. There we go. There we go. Take it. only one, Trevor. Okay. Take some sin. Oh, you, you guys all just think you're great. You can take more than one if you want. You can take multiple. Don't eat them. I want to make sure they go. Uh, don't eat it, okay? All right. She understood. Okay. Cool. Ooh, you took a whole handful. A lot of sin, huh? All right. So here's what we're going to do. I, I have this little vase, whatever you want to call it, up here. And what I want you to do, and this is going to represent God's forgiveness. So I want you to, uh, got to keep it away, kind of, a little bit of nail polish and heavy stuff in here, and it's, whoo, I don't know what I'm going to be saying today. Watch out. All right. So I, I want you guys to make a line, kind of form a line here, just like in school. Nobody's eaten their peanut yet so far, right? Oh, and one is crushed on the stage. Great job. I love it. Alex. All right. So, or, okay, Gabe is in the, Gabe, Gabe could do it too. Gabe, Alex, vacuuming, anybody? All right. So, I'm going to try and hold it high so everybody can kind of see. Everybody kind of see. It's kind of like basketball practice. Here we go. Ken's, you ready for this? You're going to make the hoop? All right. So they're going to come and they're going to confess their peanuts, their sins to God. All right. You're first up. Here we go. Toss it in. Place it in. Oh, no. Look at that. What's happening to it, guys? being vaporized. It's going away. All right, let's, here we go. You're, he's already smiling. There you go, Luke. Yeah, drop him in there. What's happening to it, Luke? It's going away. It's dissolving. There we go. All right, let's just keep... Whoa. Oh, man, now you're just... All right, that's fine. That's okay. All right, let's get... All right, now don't throw the bear in or wherever it is. Here you go, drop it in. What happened to it? Yeah, that's what I think. All right. What happened to it? It went away. Yeah. Oh, here, give one. Yeah, give one back to Matt. There we go. Don't crush this one. Throw it in here. What happened to it? 
it flowed away. Yeah. Who we got left? Who still got some sin? You got all. There you go. Whoever this person has got a lot of sin. Yeah, this was all that. So what happened to our, our sin when we came and gave it to Jesus? It disappeared. It's gone. Okay, I know you can kind of see it. Forget that part, all right? It's, it's, okay. Every kind of thing breaks down a little bit, okay? All right, does, does she want to throw one in? You want to throw one in? in there. See what happens. There you go. All right. So that's what we're going to see as we go through the story with us today. So why don't you guys go ahead, give it up for the kids. And here's, I guess, here's some stuff you guys can take. You could take two, you could take three. You guys say trick or treat first. There you go. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> She's like, that's the biggest lie pop I've ever seen. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, take. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's down. <laughs> Not the whole thing. All right. Johnny. No, no candy. All right. No, all right. No candy. All right. So give it up for the kids again. That's a little. All Did not anticipate the peanuts getting crushed, but I probably should have. All right. So that kind of gives us a, a little picture as we get into this, as we see coming before God with our sin, dropping it and seeing sin go away and seeing sin disappear from our lives. So as I said, if you remember back to last week, I, I preached on John chapter 3, and we discussed this idea of this born-again life. Nicodemus, the, the law-abiding Pharisee, needed to leave behind the law and believe in Jesus and his saving work on the cross. He needed the Holy Spirit to come into his life and change him on the inside. And today, as we look to the parable of the prodigal son, we will hear Jesus, I think, explain what repentance looks like. When someone begins this born-again life, what do we see happening? Let's pray as we jump into our story for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering of people here. This gathering of people who have come to worship Lift up songs of praise to hear from your word, Lord, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Lord, we pray for those who maybe came through those doors hurting or lost or broken, Lord. We pray that they would feel that your love and that they would hear your love through these words from your word. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come into it, we'll be in Luke chapter uh, 15, beginning in verse 11 for us today. But as we come into this, we're actually kind of coming into the, the middle of a conversation that has already started, and it plays a very important part in the context of what we're going to be looking at today. So if we look at the first two verses, it helps give us some understanding of, of as Jesus begins to teach in these parables. 
It says this. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So here again, we have these Pharisees that we mentioned last week, these strict rule followers. Some might even say that they weren't fair. You see? Get, come on, that's some, that's some classic biblical humor. Come on. Or how about, you know, the one about the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see? All right, I'm glad to stay with that. That is worth the price of admission on its own. So there you go. Uh, so consider those things as we, as we think about that. But anyways, back to our passage for today. So Jesus, he has these tax collectors and these sinners coming near to him, and, and these Pharisees are almost mocking this whole situation. They're saying, this man receives sinners, and they're just annoyed by this whole situation. And it wasn't even enough that he was hanging out with them, but he was eating with them. And for their culture, like eating was so much more worse than even just hanging out with somebody. Because if we know, we like to gather in and eat with people and build relationships. So the fact that they were sharing a meal was this deeper bond that was happening here. And these Pharisees just could not believe that, that Jesus would sit with these people. And he's going to talk about this throughout a lot of these parables that he is sharing. So let's jump into to verse 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing straight through. We're going to, we're going to highlight it uh, as we go through our passage for us today. So right away, if you look at it in verse 11, we're, we're introduced to the characters, some of this story. We have the man, the father. We have his two sons who identifies as the younger and the older. And he's going to begin by explaining and talking about the younger son. So in verse 12, the, the younger son approaches the father and asks for his share of the inheritance. Now, commentators kind of go back and forth on this. You've probably heard the classic thing maybe where this, this, this is inheritance. So the younger son's basically saying, you know what, I wish you were dead. Uh, kind of just give me my inheritance now. And then there are some other commentators who will say this was a common thing a little bit within the Jewish uh, culture. It wasn't completely out of place uh, for him to say this. So you can kind of take with it what you say, depending on who you want to read or believe from. But there's certainly an aspect where there was the relationship was hurting in some kind of way. To, to come and, and ask for this inheritance in a way while his father is still living, that there is something that wasn't right or caring within this relationship. So we're told that the father divides the property. And it's an important note that since there are two sons, the, the younger son would receive one-third of the property. The oldest son, being the most important son in my view, obviously for reasons, would receive a double portion. So he would get two-thirds of the property, whereas the younger son would only get a third of the property. And this is all laid out in those books that you skip, you know, when you're Bible reading and through the Leviticus and the Numbers. It's all right there. Trust me. Maybe you should go through it sometime and not just skip it in your Bible reading. But that is the case and where it's all laid out. So, in verse 13, as the story continues, the son packs up then 
all his things, all his stuff, and he heads off to a far country. And it's likely that he is leaving his Jewish nation and going off into a Gentile area to to find this this life of fulfillment that he was seeking. Off with his million dollars to go off and buy all the dogs that he could in the world. His move might have started off well, but as we go about, it, it quickly goes south. And we find out that he wastes his living in reckless living. And in verse 14, it even adds, when he had spent everything. Now, we don't know how much money he had specifically, but the fact that there was land and even servants within his household, this was probably a well-off house household, and the fact that he maybe had a third of this was probably a decent amount of money. But we find out that he had spent everything. And we don't even know maybe how long he had gone. A month? Two months? Three months? We don't know. But whatever the case is, he is now broke. He is now probably, maybe you kind of have this picture, maybe he's now this ragged guy, maybe walking through whatever city he is in, just looking for some food, looking for someone who has money. And as if his luck wasn't already low, we find out that there was a famine in the country, and now any food supply that there was is extremely low. And the last words of verse 14, I think, explain so much to the state that he is beginning to fall into. It says, he began to be in need. Here he was asking for his inheritance, going off into the world, thinking he had all that he wanted in his life, and now here he is at this verse, beginning to be in need. I could probably picture himself as he was leaving his father's house, that he thought he would never be in this place again, that he would never again have this need with all these things that he has. It can be a tough place to be in, and I think as we look at this younger son, one word that comes to mind is rebellion. He has rebelled against his father. He has spent everything he's had, and now he is in this place of need. Now, this isn't in Scripture, but part of me wonders if at this point, did he ever consider going home? Did he think about it? Did he consider himself in a deep enough hole that he thought, well, maybe I can just go home? But I don't think he was quite there yet. And as we'll see, it gets a lot worse for him. In verse 15, he is at least able to find work, but he finds the worst job possible for a Jew. He is feeding pigs. This is the kind of the idea that lets us think that he has gone off into a Gentile area. There weren't a lot of pigs, at least in the area of Israel. These were unclean animals to the Israelites. If you remember in in Luke chapter 8, Jesus actually crosses over into Gentile territory and he meets the, 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 the demon who has legions of demons within him. And what does he do? Small group? Come on, we were just there, right? He casts the demons into what? Into the swine. Over 2,000 pigs. And remember, it's this great picture. It just seems crazy where these swine, they run off this cliff and they all die. And there goes all the great bacon in the world. It's a terrible story. But anyways, so all this leads us to think that here we are in, in a Gentile land with these pig farmers, and here is uh, this younger son feeding these pigs. 
This was the worst-case scenario for him. In verse 16, Jesus goes on to say that the younger son longed to eat the food of the pigs. And then in verse 16, we get another phrase that I think helps us understand the mindset of the younger son. So first we have, he began to be in need. And then at the end of verse 16, it says, no one gave him anything. And if you remember how the story begins, he probably had all that he needed. His father had given him everything. And now here he is in need with no one giving him anything. His rebellion led him to a place where we would describe maybe as rock bottom, a place where he needed to get to maybe realize the place that he was. And I know we have a lot of people in this room who could describe a time in their life when they hit that rock bottom, where they realized they had given everything they had, and in the end, they had nothing that they needed at any point in their life. It brings to mind, think about Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be careful how you go about in your life. Be careful of your walk. Then something changes in verse 17. He remembers how, how well the servants in his house, his father's house, have it. He says that they have more than enough bread for themselves. He's looking at this and, and he's wondering all these things. And if you look at the wording, it very, sounds very familiar to something last week. Look at verse 17. He says, But I perish here with hunger. Perish, does that sound like anything we talked about last week? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, before we go too far on that, I want you to know it's two different Greek words. Okay, so it's not the same word that is there, but it's been translated at least in the same way for perish. So here he is in rock bottom, thinking about the fact that he will perish. And, and here we have Christ last week talking to Nicodemus and saying, look, if you don't want to perish, look to me, believe in me, and you will have eternal life. So as we go through verse 17 and into verses 18 and 19, I think we see the son go from a place of rebellion to a place of repentance. He reaches the place in his life where he realizes the sins that he has been committing. He had a long journey away from home, and now he commits to, to going back home. And he has this long journey, and I can almost see him now rehearsing over and over with all his steps, whether he's maybe getting ride on a, on a donkey, wherever he's getting to get back home, going over this sentence over and over in his head. And look at those verses there. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant, your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I can see him rehearsing that over and over on this journey home, rehearsing it, saying it over and over in his mind so that when he reaches his father, he can finally say these words to him. We see that he is admitting his sin against heaven, 
which just means in this story, God. So he, he is sinning against God, and he also knows that he is sinning against his father. He admits that he is a sinner and that he is no longer worthy, though, to be called a son. And I think we can add that idea to what we've already seen with the younger son. He began to be in need. No one gave him anything. And now I think we can add he understands that he is unworthy. Unworthy of anything that he would have as he comes back to his father. He is confessing that he has fallen short in his life. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that when we come, to just, just, just like what these kids did, as we take our sins and we carry our, our, our sins with us, and, and there's a point when he realized his sins were too much, and, and he hit rock bottom, and he realized he needed to go back to his father. And he comes to the father with his sins, and he drops them in, and they disappear. And they go away, and Jesus says that as far as the east is from the west, it is the sins that I will cast and not consider your sins anymore. You see, the son was turning his life back to the father. And that's exactly what repentance is. Repentance is that you are going one way, and you decide to turn and go another way, away from your sins and back to our heavenly father. Here's a question. Anyone know what prodigal means? I don't have a prize for you. I could throw you a piece of candy, but that always doesn't work out well. It actually means wasteful. So that is someone who hasn't repented of their sins, and he realized that he has wasted everything in his life. The younger son has wasted his inheritance following the pleasures of this world, and all it did was leave him empty in life seeking out to eat the food of pigs. This is exactly what we talk about when we think about repentance, realizing the waste that we have put into our life in following and chasing after the world and realizing that God, our Father, really had everything we wanted in the first place and realizing the love and he cares for us. Connecting this to last week, I think we see this point in the Son where he is being born again. He is recognizing his sin. He is confessing his sin. He is saying that he is unworthy of all that he has. And he says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He is confessing all that he has to his father. As we head into verse 20, I want to remember these things. Remember, he is in need. No one gave him anything. And he is, considers himself unworthy. And then in verse 20, we see that he arose and he came to his father. Here is the full picture of repentance coming back to his father. He arises out of his pit, and he heads toward his father. So the question in this story, then, is who does this younger son represent? Well, I think we get the answer from what I read earlier in chapter 15, where Jesus was sitting with the tax collectors and the sinners who were drawing toward him, who were coming to him in understanding what their position was and that they needed to come to Christ. So as we move on in this story, it transitions to the view almost of the father. The younger son is still in view, but the main attention now turns to the father. And what we, it says here, it says, But while he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him, and kissed him. 
This father was waiting for his son to return. I, I think this is a great picture that we see. It's the, the father, I, I picture it in my own mind, of him maybe going about his normal day and every so often would pause. And maybe he would look down. Maybe they had this long driveway. So he would go about his day doing things, but every so often as he passed by, maybe he looked down the driveway just to see if his son was coming back, just to see if he could get a glimpse of whatever his son would be doing and coming to his home. See, there's a picture that we see from the first two parables also in Luke chapter 15. The first one of of the lost sheep and of the lost coin. The shepherd goes out to find his lost sheep. The, The woman looks over and over throughout her whole house looking for this lost coin. The father was looking for this lost son to see if he was returning. And then he finally sees him. He finally sees his son coming home, and we're told that he saw him, and he felt compassion. I'm sure the son looked a lot different from when he left. The last time the father saw him, he was probably excited to leave, gathering his things together, ready to go off and say, See you, Dad. I'm I'm off. I'm gone. But now he is returning hurt and broken, with no possessions and no wealth. Nothing was with him. If the younger son represented the sinners then Jesus was hanging out with, then I think it's pretty obvious that the father represents God. And I think it's the state that God looks upon those who were lost. And we even see how Jesus looked out at the crowd and felt compassion. Think about Matthew 9, 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As Jesus looks out over the lost, he sees that they are lost and he has compassion on them. In the same way as the father sees his son coming to them and feels compassion. Again, in Matthew 14, verse 14, he says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus looks out at us and he has compassion for the lost. He cares for those who are broken. Jesus has the same response as the Father in this parable. He has compassion. He wants you to come to him. He wants to seek you out. Remember his words, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Just look at how the story continues. The Father runs to him and kisses him. And again, here we have, you can go through all these commentators, they go back and forth. Some say it was highly unlikely that a, a father would run to meet somebody. They just would not run in any case. Some say, again, the father would run. So take whatever commentary you believe. But the idea is that he sees his son, he has compassion, and he can't help but go and kiss and care for his son. I often think, because it says it sees him in a distance. So I wonder at what point the younger son realized his father was running out toward him and what was going through his mind. Is this, is he, come, is he running for a good reason? Is he running for a bad reason? Like, like what's happening here as he runs to him? And then he, he thinks about maybe he's angry. But maybe as the father gets closer, he sees tears in his eyes. 
And he realizes that this is a good reason that his father is running toward him. And I'm sure the embrace and the kiss was not something that he would have expected. The kiss is a sign of acceptance. If you remember back from our look at Genesis in Genesis 29, Laban runs out and kisses Jacob. He greets him into his family and welcoming him into his home. I picture here that the son now kind of, after this is taking place, he kind of maybe pushes his father off. He tries to gather himself, and he knows he has this speech. He has this speech that he wants to go through as his father is hugging and kissing him, and he wants to say, hold on, hold on, hold on, Dad. I, I need to tell you something. But if you notice in, in verse 21, as he begins going through the speech that he rehearses, the father doesn't even let him finish. He doesn't even get out all that he wants to confess to his father. And his father immediately begins he says, he's like, I've, I've admit my sins against heaven, against God, and all these things. But he gets to the part where he's unworthy to be a son, and he doesn't even get to that part. The father doesn't even let him get those words out of his mouth. It's almost as if the father says, that's enough. I, I don't need to hear anymore. You've admitted your sin. You've admitted your unworthiness. And now I think we go from a place of, of re rebellion and repentance and now to a place of rejoicing. The father gives him three gifts, a robe and a ring and some shoes. The robe was a prized gift for anybody who was coming into the house. Just not any robe. It was the best robe. The ring was a sign of family, of a signet ring possibly that would carried the family name upon it. And then the shoes were a sign of acceptance. A servant wouldn't be wearing shoes, but a son would be wearing shoes. Every gift was a statement to the father saying, you are welcome in this family. You are welcome back. I know you've messed up, but here you are. You are back. Think about it. Everything the younger son thought he would find in the world, acceptance, pleasure, everything he thought he would find, he all found it when he came back home. Everything that he needed out in the world, he found when he came home to his father. And then they rejoice and they have a feast. And in verse 24, it says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. My son was dead and now he is alive. He is born again. He was lost and now he is found. This is an amazing parable. And I hope we can understand what, what Jesus is teaching to his disciples and to us in this moment. It is the same message from last week of death to life, of being born again. Now, can I go back for a second uh, to the father and his running? And I want to share with something that I think maybe was going through maybe his mind, but it was definitely maybe going through the minds of the Pharisees when they considered the Old Testament law. Because... In Deuteronomy chapter 21, again, you know, those parts you skip over through your Bible reading, stick in there. Deuteronomy chapter 21, it talks about a rebellious son. It's someone who just doesn't follow what the family has, who goes off on his own ways, will not listen to his parents. You know what they say the punishment for that son is? Death. Yikes. All those kids who were up on stage remember Deuteronomy 21. I'm just kidding. So, but that's it here. 
He probably understands this. With a rebellious son who goes off and lives their ways, the punishment was death. I guarantee you the Pharisees and all that they understood would know these laws. So according to this law, this son coming back deserved death. So maybe the father was running out to his son to protect him in a sense, saying, if you're going to throw a stone, you're going to have to hit me first. The law demanding death. Does that sound familiar to anybody? For the wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. Because of our sins, we deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life. John 3.16, just like last week, is all over this verse as well. We deserve death. But instead, a loving father sent his son into the world to die on a cross. Jesus took on that death, and we deserved because of our sins. In the same way that the father ran toward the son, Jesus ran toward the cross and the place of salvation. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And I want you to listen to the words of Paul, and I want you to think about this prodigal son as we read from Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's a long passage of Scripture, but as I reflected on it and thought about the prodigal son, I was like, that's it. We were dead, and we are alive in Christ. My son who was dead, he was lost. Now he is found and he is alive. The younger son found everything that he needed by coming back home. So on this journey, we have seen a journey from rebellion to repentance to rejoicing. But the story ends. Then right now, it would be great. But now it turns again to rejection. And we look at the older son. We get the story that the older son is out in the field working. And as he gets closer to the house, he can hear something happening. He can hear a celebration. And he starts asking, what's, what's going on? And one of the servants says, your, your brother is home. He, he is back and we celebrate. Jesus says then in verse 28, the older son was angry and refused to go in. His father comes out and begs him to come in. Come in and celebrate with us. But instead, the older son says this. He says, many years I have served you. Many years I have worked. I have never disobeyed your command. Now, these aren't bad things, right? We would say this is great. 
It's great that you have worked many years. It's great that you've never disobeyed. But there are bad things when they become a source of pride and of anger and of looking down upon somebody else. He says, you never gave me anything. Look what he says, but this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours has wasted everything in sinful living. Pride and anger defined this older son. It is the danger of unforgiveness. So the question is, then, who is the older son? Well, it's the only group remaining. We have the Pharisees to look upon. And just think of how many times they got angry with Jesus over what he was doing. Angry over him healing people. Anger over him forgiving sins. Think about the Pharisees' prayer in Luke chapter 18. It says, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other men. That is the pride that they had in their lives. Thank you that I am not like others. The older son thought he was more important than the younger brother. The younger brother had messed up and didn't deserve anything. Well, he's half right because neither of them deserved anything. But it was the grace and the mercy of the Father, and we see that as the Father closes here. And worship team, you can make your way up, and the ushers can come forward as we begin to think about the remembrance of Christ. The Father, he always acted in love. He says, you are always with me. He says, all that I have is yours. He says, we should be celebrating. This brother of yours, he turns it around, he says, not my son. He says, this brother of yours was lost and now he's found. He is dead and now he is alive. He saw all these things. He sought the pleasures of this world. The father doesn't get angry. The father loves him. And that's how God looks upon us. Look, look at these words as we think about this and as we begin to think about communion from Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will his, keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And as we look to the cross, we see the love of a father who sent his son to us. And as Jesus dined with Zacchaeus, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And as he sits with his disciples, as he brings this bread and this cup before us, he says, remember me. Remember all that I have gone through as you reflect on all that I have given to you. Repent and come back to the Father. Paul tells us that before we approach this table, we should confess our sins in the same way in which the younger son confesses his sins before he comes back to his father. So I encourage you in a moment of silence now, 
to turn to your heavenly Father and confess where you have fallen short as we prepare to remember him. Take a moment and pray to your heavenly Father. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, writes these instructions. For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. As the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God, we, we come before you knowing that we fall short, that we, like the younger son, have gone off on our own ways. But we've realized the error of those ways, and we come to you now in the forgiveness that we find in the body of your son, which was broken on that cross. We thank you for that brokenness, which brings us new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul goes on to say, And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we come in to your presence. Thankful for the fact that we can come into your presence. And it's because of the blood that was shed on that cross that washes us and makes us new. Well, we, we can never express just all that that means for us. Well, we're so thankful that we were once dead and now we are alive we are lost and now we are found we pray this in Jesus name amen as we close out our, our time this morning and we see this journey that we have taken through the life of the prodigal son the wasteful son who wasted everything away I don't know where you are on this journey within this story. Maybe you're still in a place of rebellion. Maybe you need to hear the words of the gospel of all that Christ has done for you and repent and turn your life back to Christ. If you have turned your life back to Christ, then rejoice. Rejoice in the new life that you've had. Rejoice in all that he has done for you and celebrate that you know all that your loving Savior has done for you. But maybe you're in the place of the older son, stuck in the old ways, looking down upon others. Free yourself from that burden and that, that pride and that anger and repent as well and turn to Christ. Stand with us as we close for one last song. It's an appropriate song, the one of amazing grace. My chains are gone. Reflect on the, the song, as maybe it was sung by the younger son. Re reflect on the words as you sing it, reflecting on the time that you went from a place of being lost 
to being found, from a place of being in death, to a place of being alive in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Sing along with us this morning as we close.